GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. I hope you're well. Coming up, we speak to Kevin Ruiz about La Almoraima, one of the largest estates in Spain, just uh, here by Gastejar, a place that Gibraltar has strong links with today and has had for many years. Kevin brings us the details. How to put fun into football and help young players develop their skills. The Football Association's youth football coordinator, Tiago Costa, will be here. But first, on to the coastline of Gibraltar, where the Department of the Environment has increased its monitoring. They're looking for plastic pellets which spilt off the coast of Galicia. Uh, millions and millions of them possibly sighted nearby in Tarifa and the Gibraltar authorities are keeping an eye on them because they would be bad news for marine life. But that comes just days after the appearance of thousands upon thousands of dirty wipes that washed up on the shore of Eastern Beach. Environmental officers are investigating where those wipes might have come from together with the Environmental Agency and Technical Services. But we know from experience that Gibraltar has a problem with wipes. We flush them down the toilet when we're not supposed to and they end up clogging up our sewage system which costs us as taxpayers money. And here to tell us more is one of the men tasked with unclogging those sewers, Galito Buhaja of Wastage Products. Well, I've been campaigning against the use and flushing of wet wipes for the past few years now. Um, it is a major issue in Gibraltar. Um, I always use one of um, our examples. Um, we clean the pumping stations um, for the operators, which are Aquajib, all around Gibraltar. We removed over 80 tonnes of wipes from one pumping station. What? Now, just to put that into perspective, that's 20 African elephants of wet wipes. Now, we need to understand that we're about 30,000 people in Gibraltar. Everyone goes to the toilet at least once a day, or at least they should go to the toilet once Hope, a day. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Um, so if everyone is thinking the same way as, ah, it's just one wipe, you add that all together at the end of the day, at the end of weeks, they do accumulate quite a bit. That's now, a ridiculous amount of wipes, though. So, so a lot of people in Gibraltar are using wipes and flushing them down the toilet. Absolutely. Um, we need to take some civic pride in what we throw down the toilet. I mean... At the moment, we don't have a wastewater treatment plant, um, so everything eventually either gets um, pumped out to sea or they get stuck at the pumping stations. Now, essentially, um, it's a very um, energy-full operation to actually remove all those wipes from the pumping stations. Very inefficient. It's very inefficient. We Our trucks use, obviously, a lo loads of diesel. We need um, big machines and... Um, eventually and ultimately all those wipes that we are removing, what doesn't end up to sea, ends up at landfill. Um, so, yeah, we do need to look at our toilets as an extension of our ecosystem. Definitely, and, and it's counterintuitive because you think, oh, this is flushing away and it's, it's going and, and it's, what goes in there is 
dirty and it's waste, but there still are different types of waste. And, and even though some wipes are marketed as flushable, they're not. And, and um, they, they don't actually break down, do they? I mean, toilet paper disintegrates, dissolves... And, and, you know, it, it doesn't clog up our sewage system in the way that wipes do. Absolutely, Jonathan, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, even if, as you say, they're marketed as flushable, this could be because they just don't have plastics in it. That does not mean that they break down before they get to a pumping station uh, or even out to sea. So, yeah, it's best that we just... Avoid flushing, that's definitely... Yeah. Um, we've just heard from John. Uh, thank you for getting in touch. He said the cleaning team did a great job removing a lot of wipes from the shoreline at Eastern Beach this weekend. But John says there are still a lot of wipes visible in the sea at Eastern Beach. Uh, he saw them this morning. Um, and and you referenced, uh, Carlito, you, you're here um, representing Wastage Products Limited. Uh, um, so, I mean, in a perverse way, you actually sort of, if you don't mind me pointing out, you you, you get work when, when the sewage system is clogged up, but, but it, it's clogged up too much. No, there's, there's, there's... It's not just that, Jonathan. Um, we have a firm belief that um, these issues could be very much avoided. And instead of spending our time and our efforts in unblocking and removing these problems, we could use that time and resources to actually improve our system, to, to actually um, have a digitalized system, for example, and shift those resources um, and spend it so that the government actually do from blocking and disposing of wipes to something a bit more productive. Because, we, we, you know, we, we do like to sort of, in Gibraltar, complain that I give it, that, you know, we don't have this, or I give it, that this was promised and it hasn't been delivered. But if money is being spent on things that money doesn't need to be or shouldn't need to be spent on, but actually when a sewage is blocked with wipes... <laughs> You need to you unblock need. it. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. the sewage needs to keep flowing. Definitely. Um, and if we go even a step further, Jonathan, um, once the actual treatment plant is up and running um, and no more issue is or no more waste is going out to sea, um, that's going to be costing the government and obviously the people of Gibraltar millions in taxpayer money um, to actually dispose of what we're going to be removing from there. Uh, so absolutely, um, we should actually be looking at continuing to raise awareness and reduce what we're flushing down the toilet um, and perhaps I'd, um, look for other solutions in either taxing the use of wipes or trying to reduce it from the supermarkets. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as you say, something needs to be, something needs to change. No? Um, before I let you go, Galito, you've mentioned uh, the wastewater treatment plant. Um, you're also part of Eco Waters, tasked now with delivering Gibraltar's first wastewater treatment plant. How is that progressing? Can you give us any indication of a time frame that you're working to? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's progressing really well. Um, obviously, it's a very complex uh, project with many processes and obviously many pieces to the puzzle. Um, we just recently, just before Christmas, um, went over to Portugal with government representatives uh, to actually see a similar plant um, in use over there. Um, and if all goes well, we'll start construction um, hopefully before um, summer up at the 
Brewery Crusher and just after summer, after the bathing season at um, Little Bay. We've got those two sites that we need to work on. Exciting, no? So you, in short, exciting do you, do you, given how big a project it is and the, the, the fact that you're hoping it'll last for decades and serve Gibraltar for decades, do you feel the weight of that project on your shoulders? Um, I've We've got a very good team behind us, Jonathan, um, and I the end of the day it's um they've got a lot of experience as well um, we have a lot of experience in terms of um the gibraltar sewage network and how everything's connecting together so i think we are on the very right track to deliver this project for gibraltar all right well fingers crossed and um and uh, your catchphrase again was uh, if it doesn't come out of you it shouldn't go in the loo there you go remember it <laughs> <laughs> thank you Kalito buhaja wastage products and eco waters limited Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. We're now going to talk about putting the fun into football and helping young players develop their skills. The Football Association's Development School and their fundamental programmes have now entered a new phase. Development School Year 3 teams have been entered into club football set up for the first time and after uh, the first couple of games, um, how are they performing? A question for the GFA Youth Football Coordinator, Tiago Costa. Thank you for joining us, Tiago. Absolutely, uh, absolutely brilliant to be back. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Um, well, yes, uh, Ch- they, they changes brought about this weekend, basically. No, the start of the new term, the start of the new year. So uh, we, like you said, we we entered uh, the the new phase of the development school program, um, which um, was to include and, and introduce the element of more organised competition. So prior to prior to the Christmas break, we we gave the kids the experience of of one day festivals. Um, which were a, a load of fun. Um, kids sort of playing all their different all, all the different teams within their year groups and short, fast paced games and organised by school. No, organised by the GFA. So the schools. No, sorry, um, organised by the. Oh, GFA, they're in their school but teams. They, they're playing yes. with their school. Absolutely. like mates. So yes, they're 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 playing in their in their in their school teams or representing their schools, as it were, um, uh, split into different groups. So so there were there were a number of different teams in each age category, and and it was just really nice to see sort of everyone. Uh, banding together the parents were were great um i've i've got a fantastic team of coaches uh, that that helped help run the day and and made sure that everything was running smoothly and that the kids were enjoying themselves and even during the breaks they were entertained and and it was really fast paced so it was really nice to see them enjoying that sort of type of competition now coming into the new year <clears throat> we introduced uh, league we introduced them into league competition so uh, like you said, obviously the year threes um, with with uh, approval from from the clubs. That has to be said. The clubs have been absolutely brilliant in that respect. Um, they they um, the, the kids are now playing in in within the club league setup. So uh, the Gibraltar Youth Football League, our year three teams are now competing, or some of them are, are currently competing against um, against club teams. And so far, so good. They've 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 performed very very well. They've all enjoyed it. Uh, which again, like you said, is the most important thing at that level. If they're having fun, they, they'll keep coming back, and if they keep coming back, they'll keep learning new skills. So <laughs> that's that's the key there. So so year threes is where we've started. Those are uh, young players aged between seven and eight. No? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, and so the philosophy there is uh, play without pressure. Yep. Absolutely. How, how can you achieve that when you know you've got that sort of competitive spirit uh, in them from a young age? Well, I mean, look, the, the play without pressure is is more um, uh, not putting the emphasis on winning. Um, it's it's putting the emphasis on on improving, on on developing, on performing better than they did before. 
um, or even performing better than they did in the last quarter. Um, so it's it's not the emphasis is very much not on winning um, because that. So all right, how I describe it is very simple: that, that you can have a winning mentality and you can have uh, a, a successful mentality. Winning mentalities is all about results, 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 and and how and how that drives um, competition and and how that's the only way of improving confidence. And that's not that's not true. Um, uh, you you can have a, a successful mentality in which you know. The results are, are a result or a consequence of doing other things correctly. And, and that's the mentality and that's the philosophy that we're trying to build and, and that we have. Um, uh, parents have been very su- supportive of that and they've been absolutely brilliant, again, on the, on the, on the sidelines. Um, coaches, again, uh, all the coaches that, work, that are working with those groups um, have that same mentality as well. So we're, 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 we're quite selective in, 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 in who we bring in. But you've got coaches. Quite, quite a lot of young coaches, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. So we, I've, there's, there's a, a, between 50 and 60 coaches at the moment working within wow. the development school and fundamental programs. So um, they all go through specific training. They're, they're, they're going through their UEFA courses as well. Um, we've developed our own course, which is specific to to what we want to build in in Gibraltar Youth, and and that's and that's something that they're all going through as well. So, and, and that's um, and that's a volunteer position or or paid? No, position? Most, it is paid. We, we do we do have some volunteers um, that that choose to be volunteers, and they're just as important as as the paid as the paid members of staff. But um, I mean, the, the from a coach education point of view, it's it's so important that um, anyone that comes on board. Uh, not only has you know the, the safeguarding uh, certifications, the, the first aid qualifications, but the coaching uh, side of things is so so important. And, and our coach education department has been doing uh, a fantastic job uh, to try and build our own program and, and, and move that forward. And, and our coaches are obviously seeing the benefit of it. So um, it's it's a lot of little pieces of the jigsaw put together um, that eventually will lead to to a to a product that that will continue to develop talent into the future. Amazing. Okay, so um, uh, we've been talking then about largely seven to eight year olds. I'm sure some of what you've said also applies to the uh, five to seven year olds. Um, you've done things a little bit different for them, maybe for the years one and two, in, in that they've got um, a development school league now up and running. How does that work? It works very similarly to to the Gibraltar Youth Football League. Um, so the, the current league set up across across youth football, um, following in, in going into the second half of the season, is smaller groups, um, uh, and and it's based on sort of final standings or, or rankings after the first half of the season. And by doing that, it, it puts teams and, and clubs into groups more based uh, more more on ability. Um, and what that has created is is a more uh, sort of competitive atmosphere. Not competitive in the negative sense, but competitive in that you go into Even a game playing field, no? Exactly. So you, you you go you turn up at a game. You you don't know who's who's going to win or whether it's going to be a draw. Um, so it's exciting for the kids. Um, and and that sort of uh, league structure we've carried on and we've introduced that into the development school league as well. There is the play without pressure element in that. Uh, with anyone, any groups under the age of uh, 10 do not play playoff games, for example, to see who goes up and down. It's just, you know, they play their games and then they get a new round and it's just every week they've got a different challenge. Um, so um, the Development School League is very much like that. It's it's just uh, for, for the kids to experience that element of competition, which is obviously so, so, so important for, for their development as well. Now, I meant to mention with the um, seven to eight-year-olds, the uh, sort of um, kit element because uh, they they get sort of a, a club style kit uh, and, and I know I wanted to ask you about the kits for the youngsters as well but but tell us how how that's worked yeah so the development school at the end of the day is we, we like to 
we like to see it as a as a club um, as well. So um, it's it's a case where you know the, the kids turn up, they 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 pay, the parents pay the registration fee, and we provide them with a free kit, um, and it's a training kit. For the year threes who are competing um, in in the GYFL and the Gibraltar Youth Football League, we, we've uh, su- we've supplied them with also a match day kit, which is specific to their school. Um, great reaction from parents; the parents love it, and the kids are absolutely yeah. buzzing because they've got their own shirt number. They've got a shirt that represents their oh, school with numbers and, and all. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So no, it's a league rule, so they have to have it. Um, we <laughs> we we can't have our teams breaking the rules. No, absolutely that, no, not. Absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. So um, so they've got that, and 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 it's really nice to see that sort of. It, it builds that camaraderie between them as well. So that's that's been really, really nice to see. So, so um, this, uh, just f- to understand it and make it obvious then, so you could have like a Bishop Fitzgerald playing against Lincoln Football Club? P- potentially, yes. Yeah. So so in, in this uh, in this round of fixtures, uh, we've got uh, Bishop Fitzgerald, St. Anne's and, and Loretto School um, competing against um, Monscalpe, Magpies and uh, and the GFA Girls, for example. Sure. So uh, it's, a, it's a really competitive group, some fantastic games over the last two weekends. Um, every single team in that group and, and all the groups really have been sort of performing so, so well. And because we've because they're grouped in ability, um, what you see is is the is the, the players that haven't necessarily shone before really start coming out of their shells. And, and that is so, so nice to see because it, it's everyone developing at now their own pace. So that's that's essentially what it's all about. So, okay, so um, trying to remove the pressure then uh, is what get, allowing young players to, um, and with their coaches and their parents to, to have their own kind of goals and their own growth journeys no i mean to, to to not sound too general but like people will develop at their at their own paces at that age and what makes a, a good game um for for one player you know three months into their football life is going to be different to, to what sort of somebody who's been playing for three years expects even if they're both six years old absolutely i mean look you, you can have like you just said that everyone develops at their own pace and and uh, instead of uh, the, the question I hate at the end of every game is how many goals did you score? Did you win? Th- those are such ridiculously silly questions to ask a five, six and seven year old. But it's so easy to do it. Though, I right? know. It's very, it's very easy to fall into that trap. Whereas the questions that we should be asking is, uh, you know, did you have fun? That's the first question that, that, that should always be asked. Uh, the next question is, what what goals did you did you score? Like as in what what were your match goals? Did, did the, what coach what did coach tell you to do? Did they you know what, maybe a not, goal not was, scoring goals exactly, is it, a, might, objectives. A, an, an objective a goal might be you know can you put five passes together? Can you uh, can you take a player on and 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 win in a one v one? Those kind of targets that that we should be setting because those are the technical technical aspects of the game that we're trying to develop. Um, did you quit? Did you did you keep going to the very end? Those are the questions that we should be asking these children because those are the the types of um, attributes that we that we want to build, not just to make them better footballers, but to to help them in in every aspect of life. Those those are such key things to have and, and skill sets to have in life. And and who's attending uh, the sort of um, development school and fundamental fundamental program? Is it principally boys, or have have you got enough girls coming through? There, there are a lot more boys than than girls currently. Um, that it's it's not for lack of trying. Um, I th- I think that you know the the work that the the women's department have been doing over the last four or five years uh, has been really really fundamental in increasing participation in girls football. Um, but with some groups, there is unfortunately I, I still think a, a stigma attached to, to to girls and football, and that's something that we've working that we've worked and we're continuing to work really really hard on breaking. Um, and what we have seen in the last few weeks though is more are more girls coming through the door. And we hope that, you know, eventually 
we can have uh, almost or near two equal numbers. That's 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 the goal. That's what we really really want. Brilliant. Uh, okay, so um, I mentioned uh, the fundamental program. Uh, just to, to talk about them and, and whether there's something particular that you need to do uh, for young football players aged four to five. I mean, uh, I guess the clues in the name, and it's all about having fun. And uh, you know, there's even less. Uh, pressure. Uh, do you, do you play games? How, how does it work? So the fundamental program is it has has three elements to it. You've you've got the reception group, which is the oldest group within that program, um, and uh, essentially with those groups, it's about putting on fun little activities, fun little games where they have to use the ball, where they have to try different things. Um, I've I, again, I've got a fantastic team of coaches with that group that that are always coming up with new ideas and and new diff, diff, new new games and things that they can try with the kids and. Again, it's are they smiling when they turn up? Are they smiling when they leave? Have they had ball rolling time, for example? Have they touched the ball loads and loads and loads? Have they got? Have they? Are they better than they were when they arrived? Um, that is the key, uh, and and that's exactly what that program is all about. With with the younger ones, we've also got the preschool and the and the and the nursery uh, group. Those are uh, guided learning, assisted learning. There's there's equipment out. There's little activities that do that that, that that take place, and it's more to get kids to just have fun, be in a social environment that some might not necessarily be used to through school, or maybe they're not at school yet. Um, so it's it's giving them that opportunity to experience a football environment, um, but just to again have fun and be around other kids their age. So uh, it's it's that opening of the door, that beginning of the pathway to then le- that then leads them on to reception and development school, and then on obviously onto club football. All right, Tiago, and just to round up, you're hoping to involve some uh, Spanish teams in the coming months uh, for these football festivals, these one-day events? That's an exclusive, that. Um, so, yes, we've got some festivals coming up uh, between now and the end of the season. So how, how that works is we've got, obviously, the Development School League, um, and uh, at the end of each round, there will be a festival. And a festival is essentially a, a two, three-hour tournament and the idea at the moment uh, is to invite some uh, some some foreign-based teams to come and take part in our festivals as well to just sort of add a bit of colour rather than the kids sort of playing against the same teams over and over again. So um, it, it should be it should be a, a very interesting challenge for them and uh, and one that I'm sure that we'll all enjoy watching as well. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us and giving us that really good insight into uh, the approach taken and and, um, and how it's tailored by age. Youth Football Coordinator for the Football Association, Tiago Costa, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Jonathan. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott. La Almoraima, a word that uh, will, if you've been there, evoke memories of another time. It's timeless, really, but but it it holds many memories for for many in Gibraltar. It's a a large estate just next to Castilla, well known for its cork forest, the um, Parque Natural uh, there, uh, the Parque Natural de los Arconocales. But it's, uh, for Gibraltarians, I think, a place where lots have had family gatherings, picnics, uh, time, quality time together at the weekend spent close to nature. And it's been that way for a long time. Um, Kevin Ruiz is, is here now to talk to us about a new book. It's uh, it's written in Spanish, but, but Gibraltarians play a very yeah. significant part. 
Yes, afternoon, Jonathan. La almoraima. What a lovely word as well. I like how it rolls off. Y el paladeo, when you say that word. La almoraima. As you rightly say, a word that will evoke many memories among Gibraltarians, particularly of a certain age, although it's still a place frequented by many Gibraltarians. As you rightly say, one of the largest estates in Spain occupies over 14,000 hectares, is famous for its cork uh, forest as well, and it's part of the Parque de los Arconocales within Castellar. Importantly for many in Gibraltar, as you said, the word Almoraima evokes many memories of another time. The Minister for Heritage and the Environment, John Cortés, among them, of course. Yo tengo recuerdo de when I was a very little boy and there was this tree where we put some rope and a plank and used as a swing. So um, I'm one of the last, I think, generation that remembers regular visits to La Moraima. Uh, it's part of Gibraltar's uh, social heritage uh, and therefore I was really, really pleased that we were able to make this presentation today. Jonathan Almoraima, John Cortés, going back to his childhood. Of course, um, it was a place frequented by many Gibraltarians at the weekend before the frontier closure. And once the frontier reopened, importantly, um, even during the Franco era, um, people fr frequented Almoraima as well. And some of the activities that took place there, which we're going to be talking about now, um, also continued to go, take place because Franco actually allowed for them to happen. John Cortés sharing his memories because a new book, Memorias del Almoraima was launched in Gibraltar just a few days ago. It's written by Maria del Mar Ortega and a beautiful journey as well um, in the writing of that book. Maria del Mar, her father, was a warden at the estate for 30 odd years and he's just retired. So she decided to set up on this journey to collect some memories for him and compile them in a little booklet. In the end, the response was overwhelming. So many people who'd worked with the estate, so many people linked with the estate, associated with the estate, contributing and sending in those memories. She set off on a journey. It took a, the project took a life of its own, took over a life. Um, interestingly, she's an accountant. She's not El Mundo de las Letras, she says, <laughs> but she's written a huge tome. It's become the most comprehensive history documented um of the Almoraima that exists so much that the owners of the estate, the directors of the estate, have completely endorsed and backing this project. Um, and they're very proud of what's been achieved. Um, uh, the book, of course, covers several chapters um, covering the Gibraltar connection. We've spoken about the social links there, an area used for families, um, gatherings, picnics, just to spend time in nature, because it's a beautiful area for those it, who know it. Gorgeous. It's a beautiful Butterflies. And just, yeah, it's, it's, it really sort of helps you to unwind and de-stress. But the links with Gibraltar go further back and we have to go back in time in a little TARDIS to the early 1800s, as Maria del Mar tells us. Hay un capítulo dedicado a toda la historia del Royal Calpejan, que es el club de caza que tuvo su origen entre el año 1811 y 12, eh, que se extendió, extendió sus jornadas de caza a, a la parte española, principalmente a la finca La Almoraima, también a la zona de Guadacorte. Entonces ahí ya hubo un vínculo y, por supuesto, luego en la década de los 30 hasta la década de finales de los 60, el llamado Domingo de los Ingleses, que era pues el primer domingo de mayo, cuando toda la familia gibraltareña se desplazaban a, a la romería de Almoraima por la devoción al Santo Cristo de Almoraima, entonces eh, Gibraltar se quedaba deshabitado. Fue una tradición y además de ese domingo, primero de mayo, ya en general sábados y domingos, todos los gibraltareños 
os desplazabais allí al Moraima pues para pasar una jornada de, de campo, de fiesta y de convivencia. Jonathan, just picture it, ¿no? Um, uh, the, the, the years before the frontier closure, um, extra trains were laid out, um, extra services, transport services, people on horseback, all going all the way up to Al Moraima for a weekend. The place packed with Gibraltarians, people interacting with the local population there as well, um, the fluidity of people, no? Um, those social links uh, being built. Um, and another one, the one that I love, just picture this, early 1800s, the start of the, the, the dawn of the Royal Calpe Hunt, which, of course, many of our listeners will be aware of, those striking red uniforms um, <laughs> in the beautiful scenery of Lal Moraima, in, in those, yeah. um, you know, coke, uh, the cork oak forests, just uh, enacting the Royal Hunt. Bonito, no? Sure. And um, uh, so, so it's lovely to, to hear a little bit more about the Calpe Hunt because we've seen some of the posters at the museum in Gibraltar. Um, it seems to sort of mark a time when Spanish was much more uh, fluently mm. used by, by everyone. So we can see some of the advertising around the Calpe Hunt was in Spanish at the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's great to, to see that story being developed further. I tell you what, as a result of um, the Gibraltar connection with Almoraima, many Gibraltarian or English traditions and cultural traits were also introduced in the region, no? Um, so that interaction of people, of culture, of ideas, of conversations, no? Almoraima forms an important part of our history, but Gibraltar also forms an important part of the history of Castellar. As the mayor of Castellar, Adrián Baca, was telling us, he's very proud of the links with Gibraltar. Um, he continues to encourage Gibraltarians to visit the area. He says he's very pleased that um, throughout time, Gibraltarians still visit the municipality of Castellar, and in particular, La Almoraima, something which was also celebrated by the director of the estate, Emilio Romero who also sees the value of uh, Gibraltarians going across and, you know, contributing those ideas, uh, uh, cultural traits being exchanged and that fluidity of people, which is so important in a post-Brexit scenario, as the Mayor of Castellar pointed out as well. Lovely. Um, well, uh, long may that continue. Um, it's a beautiful place and, um, and, and I hope to visit it again very soon. The book, of course, is available locally now, Book Gem and the Heritage Trust Shop in the Piazza. All right, Kevin Drees, thanks for talking to us about that. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand.